0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll be considering together one verse together this morning. John 1, 14. In the hymn, Will Come All Ye Faithful, there's a line in it, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. It's really drawn from this verse that we're going to consider together today. The idea that the word of God, the eternal Logos, would become a human being. And what what we'll see together today is this central idea that Jesus enters our world. He entered our world with a mission in mind to save us. Jesus became human to save us. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 1, I'll read John 1, verse 1, and then also verse 14. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, it's been a number of years ago now that I met a lady by the name of Vicki. Now, you don't know Vicky, but I had the privilege of knowing Vicky fairly well. And as I got to know her, uh, she would come pretty much sit at church by herself. But as I got to know her, I realized there was something about her that you wouldn't know if you just saw her on a Sunday morning sitting there in a pew. Vicky was around 50 years old. About 12 years earlier, her husband, Dennis, had been at work. And at work on that day where he worked, there was a coil of wire that weighed a couple of tons that somehow lost its mooring and fell and crushed his chest. Dennis survived the accident but became a, a different human being. In fact, when I met Dennis, he was pretty much in, in a vegetative state, almost like a coma. He couldn't do anything for himself. He just existed. He couldn't move any part of his, his body. Feeding him was almost worse than feeding an infant. You know, he would, you would stick the food in his mouth and almost have to uh, for, force it down his throat to, to get it back there. Just His muscles didn't work right. He could give no sort of emotional or physical or personal feedback to his caregiver... You can imagine his, his bodily functions were, were messy. It was a difficult job caring for Dennis. But as I got to know Vicky, I learned something about her, that for 12 years, her life had just changed overnight, and she had entered Dennis's world. Dennis's life was her life. Caring for Dennis was, was, was her mission in life. His pain was her pain. And though he couldn't give her any sort of feedback, any word of things, any indication at all that he understood what she was doing, day after day, she cared for him. She'd go to work, and then she'd come home, and she had this full-time job, really, of caring for her husband, who was completely debilitated. As I got to know Vicki and we walked through life together, Dennis knew the end of his life and ultimately passed away in his early 50s. But the shocking thing was that when Dennis died, it wasn't a relief to Vicky. It was actually a very difficult passing because his life had become so much her life that she almost lost her identity, her cause for existence. She had so completely entered into his world that she no longer knew what to do. And as I thought of Jesus this morning, God entering someone else's world, our life becoming his life, our pain becoming his pain. I thought of Vicky, and the way that she entered the world of someone she loved to, to serve that person, to lift that person out of the despair and, and, and the physical decay that, that he endured for the next 12 years. She gave her life to him. And in a much greater way, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered our world. And he entered our world to redeem us, to lift us out of our pain. God became a human. And the first thing we see here in this passage is Jesus' humanity. In other words, it may have been halfway across the world, but Jesus walked in our chutes. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This idea of dwelling literally means that Jesus pitched his tent In other words, it's it's a hearkening back to the Old Testament when God's people are traveling through the wilderness and and they, they, they plant themselves, they pitch their tents. Jesus planted himself here among us. He became one of us and lived our life. Now, to think that the eternal God, the one who has always existed and who always will exist, the one who reigns above all things, the one who spoke everything else into being, to think that that person could become like you and me feels impossible, doesn't it? And so throughout history, people have come up with different explanations to try to explain away what this was. Some people say, well, he didn't actually become human. God, being God, kind of appeared. He took upon a human form. He appeared as a man. But what John clearly says here is that the eternal Son of God became a human being. Every major English translation translates this pretty much the same way. The Word became flesh, or the Word became human. Yet there is a word here that has more significance that, that jumps out at us immediately, and it's the word, word. In fact, in your translation, it may be capitalized. That's because it's, it's a reference to an idea that's, that's more than a word. We think word, and we think, I don't know, a series of letters that are jumbled, and we put them in a particular order, kind of scrabble or something like that, and, and they become a word. They communicate something. But the Greek idea of word or logos can't be boiled down to an idea quite that simple. Greek philosophers taught that the Logos was an idea out of which every other idea sprang. In other words, you could kind of think of it like it's, it's like the, the, the motherboard or the, the grand computer from which all other reality springs. It's this idea of existence beyond anything we can see. And John no doubt knew this Greek cultural idea. But for those who know the scripture, Logos is much more than this as well. The Logos is the idea, it's the act of taking what's in your mind and and, and shaping it, giving character, giving expression to it. So the Logos is really taking the mind of God and expressing it, revealing, it's the revelation of God. It's God's self-expression. We see this throughout Scripture. We see it in creation. So in Genesis 1, God expresses himself in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God do this? God said, let there be light. It's it's the revelation of God. It's also the revelation of his character. It's his self-expression in words. In Exodus 34, Moses is on the mountain. Exodus 20, God gave the Ten Commandments. In between there, God's people sinned. God has judged his people. Now Moses is back on the mountain, and he asks God to reveal himself. And the Lord, Exodus 34, 6, proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How does God reveal himself? He proclaims who he is. It's his self-expression in salvation. Psalm 119 says, my soul longs for your salvation. How do you do that? I hope in your word. The logos, the word of God, is the revelation of God in three-dimensional reality. It's taking an idea and it's expressing it in a way that we could never fully form on our own. Hebrews 1 tells us about this. In times past, God has spoken through many ways to to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Or Colossians 1, Paul puts it this way, For by Jesus Christ all things were created, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God himself walking, talking, breathing, smelling, getting weary, as we've heard, but he is God in human form, and remarkably, it's Jesus's humanity that reveals God's glory. Imagine that you're someone who knew Jesus the human being. Now, you know about him that he's God. He claims about himself to be God. He he does all these amazing things, but isn't there a part of you that would hope to see, I don't know, Jesus sitting on the throne and just sort of dealing out power from the throne of God? And then you would catch this vision where where you could clearly see Jesus' glory, yet John says that Jesus' humanity reveals His glory. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Well, if you are to read through the Bible, how does God reveal His glory? In the Old Covenant, where does the glory of God sit? It sits either in the temple or in the tabernacle. Now, after the Bible was written, we came up with this phrase, the Shekinah glory of God. It's, it's not from the Bible, but it's, try, it's trying to explain something in the Bible, and that is the, where is the glory of God housed? Where does it dwell? Well, in the Bible, you can't get close to the glory of God without being struck dead. Moses is on the mountain, he can't get close to the glory of God. I mean, it's like this we realize that today our world is warmed by what? By the sun. The sun sits some 93 million miles away, but even if you were in the world's most advanced technological spacesuit designed to protect you from heat, you couldn't get within three million miles of the sun without dying from heat exposure. How much more is the danger in approaching God, the one who created the sun? The tabernacle houses this glory, in Exodus, after Moses has sinned, The Lord passes by Moses, and Moses asks God, Reveal, show me your glory. And God, to protect Moses from his glory, from, from the power that emanates from the person of God, places him in a crevice on the mountain and says, When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And when the Lord passes by, Moses glazes out, and what does he see? He sees just the edge, he sees just the backside of the glory of God as it passes by. And how does that change Moses? He comes down from the mountain, and his face is glowing so brightly that people cannot look at him. He has to cover his face with a veil because he's just seen the edge of God's glory, and it changed him so radically that people cannot stand to see his face. Yet, John tells us that Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of this same glory. What we could not see, we can now see. The one we could not approach, we can now approach, Hebrews says, boldly. The one we could not touch, Luke says, we have seen and touched with our hands. The unseeable, the unapproachable, the untouchable is now seeable, approachable, and touchable. It's the glory of God in human flesh another one of John's books, the book of Revelation, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. God became a human being. Jesus takes the majesty, the infinite glory of God, and brings it close to us. He displays God's glory to us. And the end of verse 14 tells us that this glory takes a particular shape. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We see Jesus' glory is full of these two things, grace and truth. If you remember Exodus 33, Moses made a request to God. He said, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord's response is pretty remarkable. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy." What did Moses ask God to see? He said, show me your what? Your glory. And what did God show him? God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. You see, the glory of God is the goodness of God displayed. It's seeing God's beauty, God's majesty, God's graciousness, God's mercy, God's love displayed for us. So Exodus 33, Moses makes this request, and God makes him a promise, I will show you my goodness. And then in Exodus 34, he fulfills this promise and shows Moses his glory. And as the Lord passes by, he speaks these words, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, and listen to these words, steadfast love and faithfulness. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness are two words which you no doubt don't know, one of, you heard, one of which you may have heard, the Hebrew word chesed. It's God's covenant faithful love. It's his, it's his steadfast love for his people. So often when you read through the Old Testament, you see God's love or God's compassion. It's this word, it's his chesed. It's his faithful love. The other word is emet, God's faithfulness. is God's truth. God says, I will pass before you, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or in other words, when he passes by in the mountain, he speaks these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of grace and truth. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's what Jesus just came to be, John tells us. He is full of grace and truth. He then explains God's grace and God's truth in this way. God's grace is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. His truth is, but he will by no means clear the guilty. God is a God of abundant grace, but also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. The eternal Son of God became a human being so that he could die in the place of sinners. As God... Jesus can pay the infinite price for our sin. As a human being, this God can live the life that we should have lived. He can perfectly obey the law of God in our place. He can die in our place. He must be God to pay the price for our sin. He must be human to bear the penalty for our sin. And Jesus Christ is both of these things. And the only way to meet God's grace, his steadfast love, and avoid his justice, his truth, is to embrace Christ fully to save you from your sin. There's no other way. When we trust Jesus, God justly punishes our sin in Christ and then graciously gives us all of Christ's righteousness and all of Christ's goodness so that we can avoid the justice of God against our sin and feel the grace and love and mercy of God in place of our judgment. If you don't know Jesus, will you trust him today? It's a beautiful truth. Jesus entered our world to bear our punishment. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus entered our world and entered into our pain and brokenness. Hebrews four fifteen tells us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Christmas is a time of year that gives you all the warm and fuzzies. You walk through the mall, and you know the songs. People throw a little reindeer nose in the front of their car. It's a time I don't know brings out hopefully the best in people. But sometimes it's also a reminder of life's greatest disappointments, someone who was here last Christmas who's no longer with us, hopes and dreams that are unfulfilled, a reminder that we're trying to create this ideal world that exists in some fantasy land, and yet it doesn't exist in reality. It's a reminder how broken this world is. And the incarnation teaches us that when we are at our most broken, when life is at its greatest pain, Jesus enters our pain with us. He's a priest who can empathize, who can comfort, who can redeem, who can deliver us from all of this pain. Jesus will one day return as a conquering hero, but he came first as a suffering servant. And when he entered the world in suffering, it means he knows your pain, he knows your name, he knows you, he loves you, and he can deliver you from all the pain that life brings. And one day, in spite of all of the pain that you experience today, in spite of the pain caused by your sin, by other sin, in spite of the pain caused by the broken, suffering world around us, In spite of the pain caused by the fact that we don't have all that we need, Jesus will come back one day and deliver us from all pain, from all brokenness, from all tears, from all sickness, from all sadness, from death itself. Jesus is coming back as a conquering hero. You see, Jesus' first coming is a promise that Jesus' second coming will deliver us fully and finally from sin and all of its consequences. And this is a promise for all the people of God. He will deliver us fully and finally from the pain of this broken world. So as we celebrate this Christmas season, we celebrate in the reality of life here, but in the hope of a much better life to come. So let's take a moment now and reflect on what we've heard. Let's respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now.